Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday morning worship service of the Heartland Church of the Nazarene. We're a community of faith learning to love God and our neighbors as ourselves. Welcome home. Today's sermon text is from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. The passage will be on the screen for you, or if you like, please turn to Revelation in your Bible. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the words of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sam. Well, we uh, last week we began uh, what's going to be longer than I anticipated a series in the book of Revelation. I told you last week, though, that we weren't going to look at each of the seven letters that Jesus, uh, or seven messages, if you will, that Jesus writes to these uh, churches in, uh, in and around the world at the time. Uh, but I changed my mind, and I hope that's okay, um, because, <laughs> change of mind, yes, good. Uh, because uh, I got to thinking about it more and, and praying, as I always do about these things, and I just think that there are things in these letters that might be good for us to contemplate. So um, where we're going to go over the next couple of weeks, we're going to ask ourselves each week as we look at one of these, at each of these churches, we're going to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Uh, We're going to, all of them do something good, some of them do something bad. We're going to ask ourselves um, if we, if we are like the churches that we're reading about, do we have the same good qualities or the same bad qualities, qualities? And then we're going to ask ourselves, how then do we need to change? How then do we need to allow the Spirit to help work in us to help us to be um, a, the church that God is calling us to be? Well, we, we said last week as we opened up the book of Revelation, we said that it, it is a letter um, that John writes, but it is also um, it's a form of literature that we call apocalyptic. All that means is revealing. That's what revelation means. That's, uh, so it doesn't necessarily have to do with uh, you know, post-apocalyptic movies where everything blows up, although those are my favorite, like I said. Uh, I, I watched a terrible one. It's just awful. I couldn't stop watching. And I don't leave reviews, but I, I almost felt compelled after I got done finished with like to, to say this is the worst movie I have ever watched in my entire life. Um, anyway, that's, that's nothing. Uh, we said there were a couple of, symbol, uh, couple of characteristics of apocalyptic literature. One is that uh, it names the evil in the world, that, that it points out what is bad and what is wrong, um, and that it is an epic battle 
between what is good in the world and what is bad in the world. In, in, in our context, it is between, it's between Jesus Christ, the lamb who was, who was slain but now lives, and uh, the beast, as it's referred to, as we'll get to later on. Um, it's largely metaphorical um, that uh, John's original readers would not necessarily have taken all of the fantastic images that are in this book literally. It's largely metaphorical. It uses numbers, not in a way so that you can like line them up and make a timeline uh, or do a whole bunch of math because everybody who has done math from the book of Revelation has been wrong. Uh, but there are symbolic numbers. And we said a couple of those numbers are uh, three and a half and six, 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 which is like incompleteness. Seven is completeness. 12 and 44, 144,000 all, all kind of represent the, the totality of the church, the fullness of God's people. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, that is some of the basic uh, parts of apocalyptic literature. We said, though, last week that it's also prophetic in nature and uh, that the prophetic literature isn't necessarily about telling the future, but it is about calling God's people to, uh, to be more faithful. Uh, we had spent a lot of time in Amos, and, and that, Amos is a prophetic book that, that, that calls out sinfulness, but also calls God's people to turn and repent and to become more faithful followers. A couple of things that we said were important for prophetic literature, uh, that God is the creator of all things, that God has entered into a covenant relationship with us and his creation, a, faith, a covenant of faithfulness and love, that God calls a people to participate in what he is doing in the world. In the Old Testament, that was Israel. Today, it is the church. Uh, Israel still is a part of that, but uh, let's see. God will, um, God will dwell among us, as we sang earlier, um, that God's hopes and dreams are not that he would be detached from us, uh, but as we'll find out at the very end of Revelation, that God makes his home among us. Uh, his beloved creation. And that evil will finally and fully be deleted, de- defeated, not deleted. Well, deleted might work too. Uh, that it might be defeated. Uh, apocalyptic and prophetic literature is often written in, in times that aren't good necessarily, but that are, that are bad. And so that's the context within which this letter uh, to these churches are written. It is a, a context of persecution uh, and temptation. Now, before we get going, I want there's one more thing, kind of a background before we dive into this particular letter. Um, and, and one of the things that we're going to uh, run into throughout the book, this is going to feel a little disjointed, but I, I need us to have it up front so that we can kind of begin to understand other things, is that John uses uh, the Old Testament nation of Babylon metaphorically. Uh, it, is, it is a stand-in for uh, the powers of this world that seek to, uh, to either persecute or conform, seek people to conform to a particular ideal. Uh, the reason John uses Babylon, well, okay, so, so some quick history first. God's people were living in Israel. They had kings, um, northern nation of Judah, southern nation, no, get the wrong, northern nation of Israel, southern nation of, of Judah, and uh, Israel had already been destroyed by the Assyrians, and God's people in Judah were not living so well, and so the Babylonians come down, 
and they destroy Jerusalem and everything in it, and they carry off the best and brightest people back to Babylon. We call this uh, exile, and it's uh, one of the most significant events that happens in the Old Testament. Well, John uses this image rather than like Egypt, right? Because these Egypt, uh, Israel's enslaved in Egypt, but, but Babylon, what happens is, is they're invited to, to sit down in Babylon. And they weren't abused, they weren't enslaved, they weren't roughed up, but they were invited to let go of their distinctive Jewishness so that they might become good Babylonians. They said, here, come eat what we eat, drink what we drink, dress the way that we dress, worship the gods that we worship, and everything will go right for you. Now, John is using Babylon as a stand-in for Rome and the Roman Empire. Because in the world as it is was then, it was, the Roman Empire was asking the Christians, saying, if, if you want to have a good life, if you want us to leave you alone, if you want to prosper then, well, then you need to give up your distinctiveness as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. And you need to act like us and eat like us and drink like us and dress like us and, and worship the gods that we worship. And so it was in this context of, of constant temptation to give up being what God had called them to be. Uh, to give up being faithfully Christian, which um, we'll discover today is love, the way we love those around us. It's something we talk a whole lot about right here. Um, I have a quote uh, from a book that I've been reading about this. If I gotta find it. Uh, I change things up and then things get out of order Okay. Here we go. So um, author by the name of Scott Daniels, he's actually one of my professors, and I went to church with him in college, and he wrote a book called Seven Deadly Spirits, and I'm going to refer to it again a little later. But he says, the book of Revelation gives the early church the language, the linguistic glasses, if you will, to see that the goddess Roma, which is the spiritual embodiment of the power of Rome, will not give them the abundant life she promises. Instead, like Babylon, she will lure them into a variety of compromises that will conform them to her values and rob them of the abundant and eternal life they have received and are experiencing through the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ. To put more simply, Rome is enticing everybody to conform to its way And so uh, it it is offering prosperity and goodness and life uh, in a way that that is not the same as what Christ offers for us, uh, that ultimately will fail. And so John is going to use this image of Babylon, uh, that that the Roman Empire is constantly calling Christians to be not who they are called to be in faithfulness and goodness and love but to blend in with the society around them, to conform not to Christ, but to the hopes and ideals and the promises of the Roman Empire. The reason 
Revelation is still applicable to us today is because our society asks us always to do the same thing. To give up what makes us distinctive as Christian, which I am going to say over and over and over again is how we love others, not necessarily the things we don't do or do do, Yes, we are emotional middle schoolers. (laughs) Wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, It's not necessarily what we don't do or the things that we do. It is the way that we love. It's the way that we forgive. It's the way that we are generous and loving and grace-giving. That is what makes us distinctive. Um, And that is the whole kind of context behind what John is saying and what Jesus is saying to these seven churches. Okay, now that that's out of the way, I'll go back to the beginning of my presentation now. All right, he starts off, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words, Uh, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, Just real quick, the imagery in chapter 1 is of of Jesus Christ standing in the middle of the lampstands, which were these churches, which represented the churches. And he's holding these seven stars, which represent the spirits of these, uh, the angels of these uh, these churches. And we said last week that, that Jesus Christ is in the very moment among the churches, that he's in their presence, ministering to them, granting them guidance and direction and strength. And so... Uh, it is Christ who is giving this message to John to give to the people. Well, um, there is, uh, so that book that I was referring to before uh, by Scott Daniels, one of the things that he, well, that kind of forms his central thesis in the book is he gets fixated on the fact that Jesus addresses not the church, not an individual within the church, but the angel of the church in Ephesus. Um, and he, he ends up saying that uh, an angel in, in this particular context not, uh, is not like a spiritual being. It's not like something that God created uh, for, to guide and watch over the church. It's not just some kind of disembodied spiritual reality, but that it is, it is the collective spirit of, of the people, the body of Christ that are gathered together. Listen to this. Communities, like the individual persons, persons from, whom, from which they are formed, take on a kind of spirit, a personality, or a life of their own that becomes greater than the sum of their physical parts. The seven angels of the churches to whom John writes are neither uh, disconnected spiritual beings nor merely a colorful way of describing non-existent realities. Instead, the term angel signifies the very real ethos or communal essence that either gives life to the work, to our work, gives life to or works at destroying the spiritual fabric of the very community that gave birth to it. Likely, you have felt this intuitively. Likely you have walked into a building where there is a group of people and you have felt that the air inside and the spirit inside is different. 
than other places. If you walk into the middle school, Fulton Middle School, you will, you will immediately notice that there is a different spirit. Am I not right? And it may have to do with smell. <laughs> You're nodding your head yes. I'm not wrong? Okay, all right. Uh, if, if, you, if you walk into the mall, there is a different spirit there. Uh, if you walk into a church, there is a different spirit there. And, if, and no, no single church feels and has the same kind of spirit. Uh, I, <laughs> I was a youth pastor for a long time, and when I first started as a youth pastor at my first church, uh, the youth group had a spirit. It had a spirit of extreme competitiveness and low-level violence. <laughs> you, you laugh, but it, it was not a place that you walked into and felt warm, comfy, safe vibes, right? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a, come, let us love you in the name of Christ. It's, come, let's throw a soccer ball at your head. We had to stop playing competitive games and like do other things because it just couldn't handle it. Churches and even groups within churches have, have a spirit that emanates from the people, uh, the people who are there. And, and sometimes those spirits are good and right. It's a spirit of love and faithfulness. And sometimes, well, they're not. They're competitive and violent. Uh, so the fact that, that John is writing to these angels uh, is, he is he is addressing not just like the individuals within the congregation, but he is, he is looking at the overlying ethos of the group. Uh, what, what comes up from what the, these people believe and how they act and how they live out their faith, and he is addressing his encouragement and his critique to them. Does that make sense? Uh, at the end of this thing, at the end of, uh, not the end of Revelation, but the end, we get to the end of the, the letters to the churches. One of the things I'm going to ask you to think about is what is the nature of the spirit of our church? What, what defines us in that way? And I will, you don't have to do this, but I'm going to ask the Bible said to do it. You can do it too. Write a letter from Christ to our church that's in the same kind of form uh, that Jesus has sent here. Does that make sense? I'll remind you of it. Don't worry. The due date, I don't know when the due date is, but I'll tell you. You'll, we'll post it on the internet. Uh, not really. Okay. Um, okay. All right. So we go forward. Uh, Jesus begins then, to, and he writes, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, these are the words of him who, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil, your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown Weary. 
Jesus is looking down on this church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was, a, was an important city, and uh, there were lots of people there who had uh, differing beliefs and all these other things. Uh, a very kind of diverse, polytheistic uh, area. Uh, pluralism, I guess, is maybe what you want to call it. Lots of different kind of viewpoints. And it's in that context that, that these Christians have held fast to their belief about Jesus and what Jesus is calling them to do. They have set down all of the things that they believe and they have crossed their T's and dotted their I's and they have held on to those things. And when outside folks come in and tell them, well, this is really how it is, this is how you should believe, they sit down and they talk about it and they think about it and they test it and they, they, they say, yes, this is correct. Or, no, you are a heretic Get out. I'm imagining that this is what happens anyway. And they they have been so, so faithful in understanding their belief. And and, and they feel like they've had to because they feel like they've been attacked on every side with all sorts of other kinds of beliefs and, and encouraged to think differently. Remember, they've been called by their culture to give up what makes them distinctives of followers of Jesus Christ so that they might act like them and dress like them and think like them and eat like them and worship like them. But the Ephesians have had none of it. They have been faithful and true. Becky, could you do uh, if verse 4? Could you find verse 4 on there? There we go. There's always a but, right? <laughs> I love you. You're doing such a good job. But. but. <laughs> I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love that you had had at first. Remember them from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Okay, so what's going on here? He's saying, you, he's saying you've fallen all the rules. You've done all of the good things, uh, but you have, you've forgotten your first love. You have done all of the, the ritual, belief, purity kinds of things, and, let you, let, and yet you have not cared, maybe even for the people in your own congregation, you have not cared for the people around you. See, I, I, think, I think what has happened is that the Ephesians have said, we know exactly what the truth is. We have, we are the only ones who know how to be Christian correctly. And if you aren't exactly like us, then you're one of them. That's arrogant. Uh, from their boundary setting and boundary keeping, they've become arrogant. And boundaries almost always create outsiders. Creates categories of us who are in and them who are not. And when we, when we categorize people in that kind of way, we have a tendency only to love those who are like us. Only those who believe like us or think like us. And it makes them terrible Christians. 
Because when you do that, you are completely unable to communicate with sincerity the love of Jesus Christ. Because nobody wants to be converted to be a judgmental jerk. I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love and that first, you had it first. Remember that from, whom you have, from what you have fallen, repent and do the works. Now I'm not saying that we ought not have boundaries. I'm not saying that we should not have definitive ideas about what is right and wrong. I'm not saying that we can't label some things sinful. But we have to do it right. And we have to remember that the other side of boundaries is love. I don't think, maybe this is better, Purity and doctrinal correctness, orthodoxy, if you will, without love is not Christian. Purity without love is not Christian. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I'm, I'm super glad that you've figured out a lot of the things about how I am calling you to live. But you've been so focused on that that you have forgotten to love. You have been arrogant and judgmental when you should have been caring and loving. You have said, we are it and you are not, when you should have said, Welcome to our family. Or, as we have on the wall out there, welcome home. Now, I asked this question uh, to the Bible study. Uh, do we have a spirit of arrogance and boundary keeping? And they all said no. And I think they're right. Uh, we probably could do better, right? Right? In fact, it's one thing I love about this church is that uh, it's not a place that's like, well, if, if you women don't wear dresses, you're not really Christian. That's kind of the area that I grew up in, by the way. Um, so I can say that. Uh, well, if you got a wedding ring on. My dad didn't have a wedding ring for a long time. But that, the, the antidote, though, uh, is not erasing all of our boundaries, like I said. The, the antidote to, to not having Christ write a letter to us is always love. It is always turning towards others and embracing them regardless of who they are and what they've done because that is precisely what Christ has done for us. When we're evil and bad and stinky, when our spirit is poor, when it is violent and competitive, Christ still embraces us and says, I love you. The second part of this, though, is kind of tough. Repent. Repent. De- Deb asked me, what does it look like for a church to repent? Uh, 
I think it's a really good question. So you can think about that and help me out as we, well, I think maybe it starts with, with love. That's part of it. But I think it asks us, what are, what are the concrete practices that we need to do to ensure that we don't become a people of boundaries only, but become a people of, of love? Um, if not, <laughs> I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I, I, didn't, I didn't spend a whole lot of time focusing on that. Um, throughout the week. But I think it's pretty stark. Like, if the lampstands that are in the presence of Christ represent the church, and we have our lampstand removed, does that mean we're not the church anymore? Does that mean we could sing and pray and follow all the rules and not be a church? Maybe. I think so. I, uh, I want us to continue always. I, I think if, when we lose sight of the balance, of the tension between uh, purity and right living and love, well, we can go either direction, and we can have a conversation about that some other time, I think. Uh, but the, the world is not as black and white as we often want it. And so we have to mix. We have to mix love in with that. And I said, I said this, and I don't know, they, they seem to like it, that, that there's grace in the gray area of life. And, and I, think that, I think that means that, I think that's mean that's where God is at work, calling us and transforming us. That, it's, that the Christian life is messy and mixed. That it's hard to discern sometimes. But that we need both boundaries and love, and they come together to create something that is better and fuller than just black or white. I don't know if that metaphor makes sense. I'm making this up as I go, so... But this is what I want, to ask, uh, uh, want us to ask ourselves. Because we, we can think we know the answer to this. Uh, and, and humans are marvelous, marv- marvelously gifted at self-deception. Uh, churches are marvelously gifted at self-deception. You'd be like, why, yes. Or why, no, we don't have a spirit of arrogance and boundary-keeping. Uh, but maybe we do, I don't know. And it's not just my job to figure that out. Uh, so this is what I want you to uh, contemplate as we receive the Lord's Supper today. Do you personally, and I can't answer this question for you, do you personally have a spirit of spiritual arrogance and boundary keeping? Do we as God's people in Fulton, Missouri, have a spirit of arrogance and boundary keeping. What a, I got I to back up because I, I think this needs to be said. Uh, 
one of the things that happens when we do is that we miss out on the opportunity to participate with our other Christian brothers and sisters in the good that they are doing in our world. One of the things that makes The Rock, our community youth group, so great, I'm a little biased, is that there are four pastors from four different churches who have four different ways of doing church and thinking about church and four different sets of beliefs And not a one of us has said, because you don't think and act and believe just like me, I can't work with you. I I, I think, I know, that we will do more, God will use us better when we set that aside And we say, we are on the same team. The same spirit that's at work in the Methodist church and the Lutheran church. Not the Lutheran, Presbyterians. I get them all mixed up sometimes. And the Christian church is the same spirit that's at work here at Heartland Church. Thank you for listening to our Sunday morning worship service. For more information about the Heartland Church of the Nazarene, please visit heartlandnaz.org.